But we're delighted that you're all here tonight. Um, I know that there are still many people on the road. Um, it, is a, it is a dark and rainy night, and there's a lot of traffic, as I'm sure many of you have already encountered. So please keep them in your prayers as you travel. Um, it's my privilege tonight to introduce you to our speaker for the weekend, um, the Reverend Dr. Kendall Harmon. Kendall is a dear friend of mine, and he's got a list of accomplishments as long as my arm. And uh, I'm not going to go through all of them. This will be a brief encounter because you'd much rather hear from him than about him. Uh, but Kendall uh, is a graduate of Bowdoin College in Maine, alma mater of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, for those of you who are familiar with him. Um, he then went on, after he graduated from Bowdoin, to, be, uh, to Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he got his master's in theology. And then he went off to Trinity Seminary uh, in Pittsburgh and got his master's in divinity. And then he and his wife, Elizabeth, Elizabeth is right back there sitting next to Ellen O'Dell. Um, Elizabeth uh, and Kendall moved off to England where he attended Keeble College at Oxford University and where he earned his PhD or his DPhil, as they call it over there. And uh, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the subject of hell. Did you hear that? Yeah. Hell, H-E-L-L. -L. And, and I thought, who better? I mean, what, what does a rector want to do with his congregation? He wants to do two things ultimately, doesn't he? He wants to scare the hell out of them, and he wants to put the fear of God into them. So I figured, who better to do that than Kendall Harmon? Uh, that was supposed to be a joke. You didn't laugh as much as I hoped you'd laugh, but nevertheless, maybe you thought I was serious. But um, that's really not what he's here to speak to us about over the course of the weekend. I've asked Kendall to come up and speak to us on the subject of prayer. And uh, as I mentioned in the sermon on Sunday, I think prayer is something that we all, no matter where we are in our walk as Christians, prayer is something that we sometimes struggle with. It's something that many of us find difficult. Uh, to begin with, it is not something that comes naturally to any of us. And yet, it is vitally important to our growth as Christian people. And I could not think of anyone better uh, to come and speak to us on this subject. Um, it is always a pleasure for me to hear Kendall. Uh, he currently serves as the canon theologian for the Diocese of South Carolina. He's on the staff at Christ St. Paul's Church, um, but he is the canon theologian for the diocese, and he is one of the best teachers that I've ever had the privilege of sitting under. So we are in for a treat over the course of the next several days. So without further ado, if you would please give a warm St. Philip's welcome to the Reverend Dr. Kendall Harmon. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Good evening. I, uh, I've done uh, parish retreats before, and so I have put some thought into how I want to try to do this. And uh, tonight will be unique in that I will give an extended introduction, which I'll get to in just a moment. But the rest of the time, what I normally do is pray, and then I start teaching by telling you what I'm going to do, and then I try to do it. Uh, but I'm not going to do that tonight because I'm going to do an introduction for just a few minutes because you probably, most of you don't know me, and I have certain working assumptions that I bring to the table. And I never do well, especially when you get a sustained exposure to a teacher. I never do well when I listen to somebody if I don't know anything about them because part of the way that God works is he somehow mysteriously, by the power of his Holy Spirit, illumines the individual human personality. That's to say, Jeffrey Miller can preach Jeffrey Miller's sermons, but he actually can't preach Kendall Harmon's sermons, and vice versa. There's a unique thing that happens with the teacher. And so, 
you need to hear a little bit about me because you're going to be hearing from me for basically two days, which is way more than anybody should suffer through. And so I want to, I want to start, before I actually start my first talk tonight, uh, by saying a few things by way of general introduction, if that's okay with you. So here are my working assumptions. First of all, uh, one of my lifelong assumptions, I did not grow up in a Christian family, I'll get to that in a moment, is there is not enough laughter in church. It is one of my entire lives tasks to get people who are Christians to learn to laugh. Because our God is a God of mirth and of joy and of happiness. And for those of you who are C.S. Lewis people, and I know Brian's always quoting him, but right, it's not just further up and further in, but it's, I, you're not yet as happy as I mean for you to be. And Aslan is lots of things. He is incredibly joyful and full of laughter. And that is the way that the kingdom is. So actually, as a mechanism to get you through these talks, I brought something with me this weekend, which I've used on occasion, and I need to tell you a little bit about it. And it has to do with when I first got out of seminary. I was at a conference. I was talking to some senior clergy. It was kind of the back room, and I don't know how much you know about clergy. Clergy aren't very secure in themselves. They don't know what to talk about. Usually they talk about how big their parish is and how big their budget is, and that's usually not what they're interested in, but they're afraid to talk about anything else. But for whatever reason, in this particular conference, I got going on things that go wrong in church. And it just happened to be one of those things. It just spontaneously happened. And in the course of this conversation, I heard these hilarious stories about what I call worship disasters. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, you know, this is really cool. These are really funny stories. And the great thing about them is they're all true. I mean, these, things, these are things that really happen in church. So I thought to myself, well, um, I think I'm going to start using this. So what I've done over the course of... Uh, three decades plus of ordained ministry is I've collected these stories and I have them grouped in various aspects of the church's life and I'm going to be uh, exposing you just to a few of them over the course of our time together so that you don't take yourself or God or me uh, too seriously but I want to tell you as I always do when I share about this the one agreement that we need to have I need to add to my collection <laughs> And you, you may not realize this, but everybody here is a potential source of worship disasters because you've seen something go wrong in church. And every time I've done this, I've said before I've shared my stories that um, I want to add to my collection. So if you've had anything go wrong in church, I want to hear the story, where it was, when it happened, uh, so I can write it down and add to my collection. And one of my all-time favorite stories, which I'll probably share on Sunday came from speaking at the Rotary Club in Bennettsville, South Carolina, I kid you not. And the person who came up to me afterwards shared what I think is probably the funniest worship disaster story I've ever heard in my life. And every time I've shared it, people are crying, they're laughing so hard. You simply couldn't make these things up. So tonight, we're going to begin with bulletin bloopers, which are things that go wrong in church bulletins in a second, but I'm not going to do that now. I want to continue with my introduction, but everybody with me so far? So every time we get together, you're going to hear various worship disasters, and they're broken up, you know, baptism, Eucharist, funerals, sermons, reading of scripture, stuff like this. Tonight, we're going to talk about bullets and bloopers. Okay, second of all, just a quick word about myself. You can tell from my accent that I did not grow up in South Carolina. I grew up in central New Jersey in a little town called Lawrenceville, which is in between Princeton and Trenton. Both my parents are teachers. My father was a chemistry teacher. My mother was an English teacher. My brother is two years younger than me. My father went to Princeton. My mother went to Duke. My brother went to Harvard. At my home, you had to fend for yourself like crazy to survive at the dinner table. 
And if you hadn't read the New York Times and couldn't quote chapter and verse, you were dead before you started. So I grew up in a, in a family where the life of the mind and the importance of academic achievement was the number one thing bar none. And, and that informs my approach to things in general. My wife, whom you've heard about, like all clergy, I think I married up. In my case, it's true literally. My wife is two inches taller than me. Uh, she's, she's also much better and much better looking than I am. And she's a professor of nursing at the MUSC, uh, as, as some of you may or may not know. And we have three children, girl, boy, girl. Our oldest is a starving artist. She lives on James Island. She, you can't call them waitresses. She's a table server. At, at slightly north of Broad, and she writes her own music. She has three songs on Spotify, and she's going to be doing a concert in just a little while. So she's our starving artist. Our son lives in New York City. He used to work in equity research. He now works for a startup called Yipit Data, which is in one of the hottest areas in the world right now, which is a strange and very important area called data crawling, which you may or may not know about which is a long story for another time, but basically you and I leave entrails of public information all over the web every single day, and his company goes and gets it, they aggregate it, they write logarithms and programs and, and synthesize it, and they know companies better than the companies know themselves. It's very scary. And our youngest was born with a supernatural love of animals, uh, my wife and I don't understand it. We don't have anybody on either side of our families that we can find that loves animals. So uh, among many other things, for example, at about age six, she raised a squirrel. We had dogs, we had cats, we had frogs, we had snakes, we had horses. And I know you're going to be shocked to hear she's a fourth year veterinary student <laughs> at the Tufts Veterinary School in Boston, Massachusetts. So that's just a little bit about my family. Lastly, just a quick word about my ministry. You can tell by my education that I come from a big picture approach to things. My entire education is in the classic Western history of ideas, and that's the way that I think. And probably the one thing that I would say to you is a, a story from a class I taught at the Church of the Holy Comforter in Sumter on the Book of Revelation for two years. And probably halfway through the second year, one of my students, a very nice adult laywoman came to me after the class and she said to me, she said, Kendall, when I take a class from you, I feel like I'm taking a sip out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> so if you're not used to it, let me just tell you, you're going to get an ocean of information coming at you very quickly. Don't worry. We'll have a chance to beat it around. There'll be an opportunity to see some of it up here on the board. But, but somehow, uh, when you get a lot of information, as long as it's organized, and it comes from the heart, it's something that seems to work for me. Last thing by way of introduction, and then I'm gonna get going. I do wanna say just a word about this subject. Jeffrey's already hinted at it, but I wanna lay it out with explicit force. Whenever you hear a presentation on prayer, brothers and sisters, you're in trouble. And the reason is this, prayer is not only one of the hardest things to talk about, and one of the most important to talk about, it's also one of the most dangerous. Because in the New Testament, when the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 11, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus answers it in this way. It's very, very important that you understand this at the outset. When you pray, say. That is to say, the way that you learn how to pray, drum roll, is to pray. There's never been anyone who's learned to pray other than that. It's like swimming. 
You can go around the pool. You can hear all the talks about safety. You can walk in and stand in the three feet end. But at some point, there comes that terrible moment when you've got to jump off the side and try it to yourself. And you can never learn to swim unless you actually swim in the water. So the danger is we're talking about something and it risks being theoretical about it, but when the way that you learn it is to do it. So I want to be clear at the outset that what's good about what we're doing is we're weaving Compline and teaching back and forth, but I just want to be clear that talking about it is dangerous unless we talk about it in order that it impacts your life. So my goal, my hope, my prayer is that all of us will come out of this with a greater ability and understanding of prayer and a greater ability to pray. Everybody with me so far? All right, just a few worship disasters, and then I will, I will start the, the real talk. I will only tell you one more time that none of these are made up, they're all true, and I will only do a few, even though I want to do them all. For those of you who have, have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. <laughs> The eighth graders will be presenting Shakespeare's Hamlet in the church basement on Friday at 7 p.m. The congregation is invited to attend this tragedy. <laughs> this being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> This morning, our preacher will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth with Joy. <laughs> Thursday night, potluck supper, prayer and medication will follow. <laughs> Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. <laughs> Evening massage. 6 p.m. <laughs> One of my personal favorites. The pastor would appreciate it if the ladies of the congregation would lend him their electric girdles for the pancake breakfast next Sunday morning. <laughs> the audience is asked to remain seated until the end of the recession. The low self-esteem group will meet Thursday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> Ushers will eat latecomers. I really... The Reverend Merriwell this morning spoke br briefly, much to the delight of the audience. <laughs> During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon <laughs> when J.F. Stubbs supplied our pulpit. <laughs> Next Sunday, Mrs. Vinson will be the soloist for the morning service. The pastor will then speak on, and I quote, it's a terrible experience. <laughs> the music for today's service was all composed by George Friedrich Handel in celebration of the 300th anniversary of his birth. <laughs> today's sermon, How Much Can a Man Drink? with hymns from a full choir. <laughs> Hymn 43, Great God, What Do I See Here? 
Preacher, the Reverend Horace Blodgett, hymn 47, Hark, an awful voice is sounding. <laughs> and one of my all-time favorites, and you, you probably know this, not a tradition that's ours really, it's another tradition, but these clever church signs, you know, they try to advertise the sermon so that if people come by, they'll be hooked and they'll want to come and attend. Don't let worry kill you, let the church help. <laughs> Just a few, so that we don't take ourselves too seriously. All right, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your presence with us, for your love for us. We acknowledge that even the very hairs on our head are numbered in your sight. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. We thank you for your grace that has been poured out to each of us individually and to all of us collectively that has enabled us to reach this point. And we thank you that you are a God who brings us teachers and an opportunity, Lord, to learn more of your kingdom and to grow into the disciples that you long for us to be. We pray tonight for reverence and humility. We pray for openness. We pray that the ears of our hearts would be open to what you have to speak to us. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open to what you want us to see. We pray that you would open your word into our midst and our hearts to your word, and we pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. We begin tonight with a throwaway verse at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. It's almost as if you had a play of Jesus' life and a spotlight zoomed in on a very unlikely scene. It's the only place in all the Gospels where it's mentioned. It's in a very busy chapter. Immediately this happens, immediately this happens, immediately this happens. And Mark chapter 1, verse 35 reads this way. And in the morning, that is to say the next morning, after all this stuff has been happening, a great while before day, Jesus rose and went out to a lonely place, and there he prayed. And in the morning, a great while before day, Jesus rose and went out to a lonely place, and there he prayed. If you forget everything else that I say, the one thing that I want you to remember is this. The entirety of Jesus' ministry needs to be thought of this way. It is fullness before overflow. Fullness before overflow. How does Jesus do all the things that he does in the Gospels? How does he know to say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again? And then in John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, to say at the right time, in the right moment, go get your husband. How does he know when to be quiet when he's bouncing back and forth like a ping pong ball with Pilate here and Herod here and Caiaphas here? And all these things toward the end of his life. When to speak and when not to speak. And how does he say the right thing at the right time every single time? Answer. It's because the Father gave it to him that morning. And all that happened is it overflowed from him what the Father gave him the rest of the day. So here's the question. If that's a description, a narrative description of Jesus' prayer life, can we get a glimpse, a hint of what was actually going on when he was out there by himself. You all with me? 
We're going to try to take a scriptural look for just a moment at what this time in the morning for our Lord was actually like. And we know the answer. And I want you to turn to Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. I use the RSV just because I grew up with it, but please feel free to use whatever version uh, that you brought with you. You're definitely going to need your Bible. Uh, so if it's on your PDA or if you brought it with you, please open to Isaiah 50, beginning at the fourth verse. The reason that we know what Jesus' prayer life is like is because in his ministry, Jesus does something very remarkable, and that is he uses the Old Testament in a way that no one else had used it before. He puts together this strange angelic figure of the Son of Man who shows up in Daniel chapter 7 with this unusual figure of the servant and then the suffering servant in the second half of Isaiah. And his way of teaching about himself from the Old Testament is to marry these, this figure from the second part of Isaiah, this suffering servant, with this angelic son of man. That's his self-understanding. And these four servant songs in Isaiah absolutely crucially inform his self-understanding at a theological level. These are the readings in the Old Testament for Holy Week, just in passing. And for those of you who are New Testament buffs and you know your New Testament really well, you may know that in Acts chapter 8, when the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, he's reading from Isaiah 53, which is one of the four servant songs. And if you remember, uh, when Philip comes to him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, actually, no. And Philip explains that the servant song that he's using is actually about Jesus Christ. So we know from the New Testament that these servant songs are meant to speak and to point to Jesus. We know from Jesus' own ministry that they're, they're intended to speak to Jesus. And what you have in the servant song, this, this one that we're going to look at in just a second, is a glimpse into what was actually, I think, I want to argue, going on in that time. So it gives us an actual sense of the prayer life of Jesus. So look at the text, and let's see what it teaches us about prayer. Everybody see where I am? Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. Just going to read it for a second. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with the word him that is weary. Morning by morning he wakens. He wakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And then it goes on in the further section. Now, a whole host of things about the prayer life of Jesus from this passage. First, it begins with God. Did you notice that? We're back to Genesis chapter 1. Prayer is not about you. It's not about your petitions. It's not about your talking to God. It is first and fundamentally an issue of response. It's about the giver and the gifts not the recipient. And this passage starts Godward. It starts with pointing to the Father. Jesus has been given another day of the gift of life. And the Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus. And we know that the Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus because at the end of his life, he quotes the Psalms that he learned from his mother and father as a young boy. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he says, Psalm 31. These are straight out of his own prayer life. He doesn't go back and get the family Bible and blow off the dust. He doesn't have time for that. The scriptures that he learned are already in his heart 
And in the crunch time, they come out of his heart. And Jesus begins the day by meditating on the word of God, just like Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who does not walk, says Psalm 1. But he meditates on his law day and night. And Jesus begins with the word of God. And he doesn't just begin reading the word of God. He begins, as a good Jew, meditating on the word of God. When we were coming up here, we listened to a Tim Keller sermon. And one of the things he talked about was scripture and scriptural meditation. And he was in a class where he was taught how to meditate on scripture. And the teacher gave them one verse and said that they were supposed to meditate on it for 30 minutes. And he'd never been, he'd never done this before. He'd never been challenged to do this before. And there were about 25 uh, people there. And he said, um, they all went away and he was given Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 17. And he spent all this time. And then they finally all came back together. And the teacher said, uh, did anybody here notice something in the verse that they were given that they hadn't noticed before? And a whole bunch of hands went up. And she said, okay, um, how many of you noticed what you noticed in the first five minutes? No hands. How many people noticed what they noticed in the first 10 minutes? No hands. How many people noticed in the first 15 minutes? No hands. They only started to notice what they noticed and what they were hit with after 15 minutes. And for Tim Keller, it came near the end, in the 25th minute, roughly. So he said, this is the way that Jesus starts. When he says, the Lord God has given me, the tongue of those who are taught, he begins with a reality check of being the son of the father, being in the Lord's world, being about the givenness of creation. And this is absolutely crucial for us as Christians to understand. There is something rather than nothing. You do know that, right? There's a world that we're inhabiting. We have bodies. There's such a thing as air. Our God was complete in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't have to make anything. There didn't have to be a world. There didn't have to be a you and me. The fact that there's something rather than nothing is itself a grace. The prayer book does a beautiful job in that Compline service that we just finished. The last prayer in Compline is the Song of Simeon, which is a figure in the Gospels who's waiting his whole life because he needs to see the Messiah before he dies. And he says, Lord, you now have set your servant free to go. I can now go and I can now die because the Lord has done with me what he wants and I know that I've fulfilled my mission. And the prayer book begins the prayer in the morning with this. Open thou our lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. So you go to bed into the death of sleep and you wake up by saying, open your lips. In other words, the fact that you're alive is a miracle and a gift of God's grace. When it says, the Lord God has given me, you got to stop right there and realize all that you've been given. Here's Frederick Beekner. I hope I'm allowed to quote somebody other than C.S. Lewis. <laughs> the grace of God means something like this, he says. Here is your life. You might have never been, but you are, because the party wouldn't be complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It is for you that I created the universe. Boom. That is the posture of our Lord. It is the givenness and the grace of the givenness of the God of creation, of the fact of creation, of the fact that he's a creature because he's fully in human flesh, and that is the way that we as Christians are called to begin our day. The givenness of things. And what is his posture? 
It is a posture of receiving, not speaking. Daily devotions are about all sorts of things. But usually when you get a class on prayer, I notice I'm not writing enough. Usually when you get a class on prayer, right, this is what you get. Get this, A-C-T-S, right? And so you get prayer. Prayer is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And usually you get a whole bunch of techniques, how you adore God, how you confess your sins, how you, uh, how you, you ask God for what you need, and how you give thanks, as if it's a task that's about you and what you say. If I drop you into the average American person's prayer life, what is it usually focused on? Petitionary prayer. If I drop you into the average American church's prayer meeting. You've ever, you been in a prayer meeting? Public prayer meeting? Dear Lord, Aunt Minnie, things are so grievous. Aunt Minnie has hurt a knee. Please help Aunt Minnie. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying with, for Aunt Minnie's knee, but usually in American churches, that's the, kind of the heart of the prayer meeting. It's about a petition. It's about a request. It's about formulating the request in the right way. It's about articulating the words the right way. It's about asking in the right time, etc., 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 as if it's some kind of magic formula. It's all about us and about the request. This passage is entirely the other way around. It's about the givenness. It's about being taught. It's about being given. It's about enabled to know. So... Giver plus giving. Now look at your text and look at what it says. Morning by morning. I think you could do a year of sermons on this passage. And at least eight or nine of them could be on that phrase. He was there when he wanted to be there and when he struggled to be there. He was there on Mondays. He was there on Wednesdays. He was there when it was easy. He was there when it was hard. He was there when it was raining. He was there when it was basically a terrifically fantastic sunlit day. Every single day he was there. Question, do you apply the same standards of regularity in your prayer life that you do with the Lord? Does your bank ever write you a statement at the end of the year and say, you know, you did really well with your mortgage payments this year. 10 out of 12 isn't bad. Right? I don't know anybody that says to their newspaper delivery person, I really feel good about how you did this month. You got 20 papers out of 30 days. Really, two-thirds. You passed. It's not the way that we work. We expect things to work decently in order. And this is a regular discipline. This is one of the most important things that goes back to that point I made about prayer is something that you do. It has to become a habit that is so habitual, it's like unmaking your bed and then making your bed. I've never met somebody who doesn't make their bed. It should be, and and when, if you ask somebody, did you make your bed today, they look at you like it's strange. Right? We know that we're supposed to eat. We know that we're supposed to sleep. We make our beds. There are certain things that are automatic. And this phrase about Jesus is he's out there every single morning. It's a regular discipline. It's an automatic part of his life. <clears throat> so, it's about giver and giving. It's about regularity. It's very Anglican, isn't it? Right? It's very liturgical. Right? This is daily prayer, which is why we have the service of daily prayer. It comes from passages like this. Next thing, so profound, this passage. What is he doing? 
after he meditates on God's word, after he starts with what's given, after he begins with the fact that he's the son and the father's the father, he begins with that reality therapy. After he begins with the fact that the grace of God means there could have been nothing, but there is something, and I'm here, and the Father's here, and I'm called to do this, and he does it every single morning, then what does he do? Right? He speaks. No. <laughs> no, he doesn't speak. You can hear a lot of teaching. You can read whole books on prayer and never hear about listening. And this passage, if you look at it carefully, is about listening. It's about paying attention. Now, Jeffrey mentioned to you that I went to Bowdoin College. What he didn't mention is my major, which is chemistry. And I have a lifelong interest in the history of science. And science is a lot of things, but the heart of science is this. You have to be willing to change your mind based on new evidence. That's actually a lot more difficult than most of us give it credit for. And one of the most profound things about the history of science is it's always the story of somebody who has the evidence staring them in the face, and instead of looking at it and then going on to the next thing, which is clearly not what's happening here, right? Morning by morning. This is a man who's fully awake, who's fully alive, who's seeking to listen with every fiber of her being. So Sir Alexander Fleming, when he discovers penicillin, he goes away on a pretty quickly unplanned vacation to Scotland, he comes back, his lab is an absolute mess. It hasn't been properly cleaned up because the custodian hasn't done the proper job. And he goes into this messy lab. Now, anybody want to trade places with him? I mean, who wants to come back from vacation and go into a messy lab? And he looks at one of the Petri dishes, and unlike almost every scientist in the world, he looks at it, and everybody else would have just kept right on going and started cleaning up the lab. He looks at it and he says, that looks strange, he says. Why does it look like that? And then he says, it shouldn't look like that. Why does he look like that? He discovered penicillin because the janitor spilled something while he was away on vacation. It was an accident. He came back and he paid attention to the other. He went up to the Petri dish and he looked at it for the longest time. He said, wait a minute, why is it growing like that? It changed the world. Listening to the evidence, being open to what's being presented. Everybody here knows that this is true in human listening, right? I mean, I'm married 30 plus years. You don't get to talk to my wife about this, but she's talking to me and I'm not there. Anybody else identify with this? Right, the lights are on, but nobody's home, right? In order to listen to another person, you've got to be fully present to the other person and you've got to stop the conversation that you incessantly have with yourself, right? We're, we're all doing this. You're thinking about the next thing, your own agenda, all the things that you want to do, all the things you haven't done, your own insecurities. It's all about us, right? And this constant conversation, and you've got to center yourself and look outward and try to drink in the fullness of what the other person is saying on the other person's terms. This is the whole of Jesus' ministry. It's why he's so, such an amazing minister. He takes in the woman at the well entirely on her own terms. He takes in Nicodemus entirely on his own terms. And this is a portrait of him taking in the father entirely on his own terms. Listening like Alexander Fleming was to that Petri dish. Jesus is listening to the father in that way. And he's listening so that he can be awakened spiritually. And the heart of it is his ear. You heard me pray this, but I want to make sure to note it for you. One of my favorite phrases in the New Testament from Paul is the eyes of the heart. We don't have time to get way off on this tonight, but 
You may remember that on the Damascus Road when he was converted, he temporarily went blind. So the last thing that he saw in noonday prayer right before he went blind was the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. As a God-fearing monotheistic Jew, the one thing that he knew was no one could see God and live. And he not only saw God and lived, he saw God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. He didn't see God the Father, he saw the Son. And then he went blind for three days until Ananias came and laid hands on him. And this phrase that Paul uses, the eyes of the heart, comes from that three-day experience. That's what he, he was left emblazoned on his consciousness and therefore down into his subconscious with that image. And when he uses that phrase, the eyes of the heart, he's talking about inward seeing. This passage, when it says he wakens my ear, is talking about inward hearing, inward listening. Just two stories, quickly if I can, about listening. The first is from the Christian Century last year. They do this really great series. I don't know if you know this publication. It's a weekly Christian publication. But they, do, they, do, they ask their readers to submit essays on a particular topic. And last year, the topic was, you ready? Silence. And they only publish in the, in the periodical the best essays that they get from all over the country. This is one essay from last year. I, I absolutely love this story. Listen, my 12-year-old son, like many children with autism, is nonverbal. Through typing, writing, and signing, he's able to communicate many of his needs through patchwork of strategies that often, unfortunately, in my case, leads to misinterpretation. But one thing he knows is when he wants to be ready to walk. Most afternoons after school, or often early on Saturday mornings, we take walks together. Sometimes he listens to music to dull the sensory interfering noises of the world, sometimes not. When time allows, we walk for miles and miles, often taking familiar routes in and around town, sometimes charting a new course. Side by side and in silence, we walk. I discern this to be part of my calling as a father. The exercise is good for both of us to be sure, but it fills my soul. I'm privileged to be there, sometimes to guide and to protect, but also just to be alongside. Together we experience routine and surprise, stillness and movement, quiet and its varied interpretations, and there is mystery to be found in it all. In the other parts of my life as a pastor, I'm not always comfortable with silence. Sitting down to pray and meditate can be a challenge. I am prone of thinking of the next meeting to attend, the next parishioner to visit, the next sermon to write. In the quiet, I fret about performance, I worry about the future, and I dwell on all those many things that are so tempting for me to try to control. So often, it is so hard to listen. And so I walk, and my son, by walking with me, helps me embrace the quietness that we are allowed to share with one another. And in our shared silence, I am reminded of the God who also walks alongside us at all times and in all circumstances, the one who will speak if we are but willing to listen. Boom. Great stuff. A 12-year-old autistic boy teaching a pastor how to listen and how to be quiet. Great stuff. This is what Jesus is doing. He wakens, he wakens my ear. The psalmist puts it this way, For God alone, 
my soul in silence waits. It's not enough to still the inner conversation that's getting on to the next thing. It's not enough to still all the music that's going 24-7 with every imaginable device, PDA, computer, television, telephone, you name it, we've got it. And everything's moving 24-7. It's so hard to wait for God in silence. But his son taught him the importance of that by all those walks. And just imagine Jesus in a situation like that. He'd be right with that son, he'd be walking, and he'd be drinking it in, and he would have so much insight about that 12-year-old autistic boy. And this is the Jesus who is fully available to the Father at the beginning of the day. No wonder he had so much to offer. He had so much that he was given. One more story about listening. I don't know if you are Chuck Swindoll fans. I am. And this is a story about early in his ministry in New England. And uh, I know you're going to be shocked to hear this, but he was overcommitted. And uh, he said he was so overcommitted that he started getting more and more nervous and tense. In his own words, and I quote, I was snapping at my wife and children. I was choking down food at mealtimes. I was feeling irritated at all those unexpected interruptions through the day. Before long, things around our home started reflecting the pattern of my hurry-up style. It was unbearable. I distinctly remember after supper one evening the words of our younger daughter, Colleen. She wanted to tell me something important that had happened to her at school that day. She began hurriedly, Daddy, I want to tell you something and I'll tell you really fast. Suddenly realizing her frustration, I answered, Honey, you can tell me. And you don't have to tell me really fast. Say it slowly. I'll never forget her answer, said Swindoll. Then listen slowly, Daddy. Listen slowly. Boom. This is Jesus listening slowly. So, it's giver and given, it's regularity, and it's listening. Not done. Did you notice the posture, the self-understanding that goes with the listening? It's there twice. It's in the second phrase in verse 4, and it's at the end of verse 4 again. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Morning by morning he wakens, he wakens my ear. Here's the key phrase, to hear as those who are taught. What is the posture of Jesus? It isn't just that he's there. It isn't just that he's fully there. Those are absolutely indispensable. It isn't just that he's fully there every morning. All that is crucial. It's also the posture and the self-understanding he brings to the time. He's a student. He's a student. We're in trouble again culturally because you and I study subjects. And back in Jesus' day, they followed people. That's the way that they learn things. So in Jesus' day, to be a student meant to be in his father's carpenter shop and to spend time with a carpenter in every phase and to learn and to see and to feel and to touch and to hear. And you, you imbibed the, the, the feeling and the nature of the shop and you saw the skills. This comes all the way down to us uh, to this day in things like grand rounds. For those of you who know in the, in the medical profession well, where you see doctors put up their individual cases in front of other doctors. And they're simply going through the cases, and they all know the medicine. But the point is, it's an apprenticeship. You train by following somebody around, seeing what they see, feeling what they feel, and you learn that way. That's what discipleship is. This is what the word discipleship means in the New Testament. To be a disciple is to be a student of the rabbi. And so this is Jesus as the student of the Father. Now, I told you about my family, that both my parents are teachers. So I have a lifelong bias in this area. I had a long, my, both my parents are gone uh, 
now, but I had a lifelong conversation with my father about what makes a good teacher. And a fascinating subject. You may know, but if you don't, I'll tell you. Knowledge of the subject is not in the top ten. Did you know that? About teachers? Not even, doesn't even make the top ten. By the way, sense of humor does. Just in passing. But one of the things about great teachers is they know their students. They pay attention to their students. And one of my favorite experiences as, a, as an adult was of one of my father's students writing him this note when he was in his, early in his professional career. And he basically wrote to my father. My father only had about 10 thank you notes over the course of maybe 32 years of teaching. And he wrote back from Massachusetts where he was ministering. And he said, basically, you changed my life. And he later endowed a scholarship in my father's name at the school where he taught in New Jersey, which was one of the happiest moments of my father's life. But what I loved about it was, what, this, what that letter basically said, if you read it, was, you took a special interest in me. You paid attention to me, my unusual background, and you cultivated in me a hunger to know on my terms that took me fully into account. And you changed my life. And that is the heart of learning as a student. So what did I learn from my parents? Lots of things. But the one thing I can tell you about teachers is this. What does every teacher dream about? Having a student that wants to be there. That's the dream. It doesn't matter what the class. It doesn't matter what the day. They love people who want to learn. One of my friends uh, in, in seminary was a first grade teacher in Canada, and I went to stay with her for several days, and I sat in the back of her class. This is an interesting story. I sat in the back of her first grade class for two days. Uh, you can learn a lot about first grade and teachers and students, and it was, a, it was a fascinating experience. And one of the things I realized by the second day was this. There was an invisible line in that class between the students. It wasn't visible, but it was invisible, and it was this. There were students who got there and because of what happened at home, you could tell it didn't matter what the teacher said or how hard she tried to teach them. They couldn't learn because they were already in a posture where learning was impossible because of all the baggage and the static and the stuff that they bring. And she had to spend so much time letting them still themselves and cause all that static to get off the line. And I felt so sorry for them. And you realize how much an impact family makes on kids who are only six years old. That invisible line that went through that class. But what was so great was to see how she learned to take special attention to those who weren't sticking with it and to go past the family background and to take them into consideration. And one of the most important things was she learned all their names real early. And you could tell how much that meant. When I left Sumter after three years, I did something which I probably shouldn't have done. I, I said, uh, if, if you remember anything that I did right, you can tell me. And uh, it, en it ended up being a mistake because people wrote me letters and said, you know, I really appreciate that you did X. And I was terrified because I didn't know what they were going to say. But my favorite letter was one of the older women in the parish said, you gave me Eucharist every day when I received it by my first name. And, you know, I never even thought about doing that. I actually didn't even know that I did it. It was the thing that meant the most to her. That's paying attention. That's listening the way that Jesus is listening. So he's out there, he's out there every morning, he's out there listening, he's out there listening, he's out there listening as a student. Right? He wants to learn. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it's not enough to pray, it's not enough to pray every day, it's not enough to pray and seek to listen every day. You've got to say this, 
Lord, what do you have to teach me today? That is an indispensable pre-question to a true prayer life. Jesus has a throwaway line in John 7, 17, which I want to make sure you know. He says this, he says, If any man's will is to do his will, he will know. Fascinating. He's talking to people and they want to know the will of God. And Jesus says, the thing about knowing the will of God is, you're not going to know it unless you want to do it before you hear it. (laughs) That's the posture of this person. All right, one more thing, and then maybe I'll take some questions and we can can call it a night. I, I love this passage. And you'd think, after all that, and that's a load of stuff that we'd be done. But there's one more piece. It's not just that it's giver and given. It's not just regular. It's not just listening. It's not just listening as a student. There's one more dimension, which is past the self-understanding. It's about the will. And it's this. I listen. I listen as a student. But I listen in a particular way. And it's this. To be obedient. This is the Old Testament word Shema, which I don't know if it's known to you. The, the, the Jewish creed, even to this day, is called the Shema. And in Deuteronomy 26, in Hebrew, Hebrew it starts out, Shema Israel, Shema Eloheinu, Shema Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that word Shema means this, hear for the purpose of obeying. And the difficulty is, You can actually be there every morning. You can be there every morning receiving. You can be there every morning listening. You can be there every morning thinking of yourself as a student. But, 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 you can be not open (laughs) if he tells you something that you don't want to hear. And what's so powerful about this passage is Jesus is very clear that he doesn't turn his back. And you know this about him because it was true at the end of his life. Obedience. Probably the weakest attribute of our culture. You do know this about Americans, right? The Declaration of Independence is kind of in our consciousness. We like to throw off authority. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. right? So in England, where I lived for three years, one of the great things about England, and I know Jeffrey tells stories about this, but it's important, is they have a sense of authority because they have a monarchy. And they understand deference to authority, so they have a much greater sense of the importance of obedience. One of my favorite British stories is about Neil Martin, a member of British Parliament. He's, he's giving a group of his constituents a tour around the Houses of Parliament. And in the course of his visit, off in the distance, he sees Lord Habersham, the Lord Chancellor, wearing all the regalia of his office. And Hailsham recognizes Martin and his group, and so when they get close enough, he cries out in full voice, Neil! And he's there with all his constituents. And, and he, <laughs> Martin turns around and every single member of his party is down on the floor kneeling. It's just, it's just what they do. It's just what they do. It's, inst- it's instinctive. Right? He waves at his friend and he turns around. They're all down on the ground. The, the, the point is, it's just, that would not happen in America. That's not an American story. It doesn't work. Here's an even better story from the Southern writer Archibald Rutledge. He's out in the field one day, and he meets a man who's beside himself. He goes up to the guy, and he starts talking about how he's doing. He wants to know why he's heartbroken. And he says his dog has just died. So Rutledge being Rutledge and being a listener and loving to be out in creation, 
He says, well, tell me what happened. And he said, well, um, I work out of doors, and so I always take my dog with me. And this particular morning, I, I left him in a clearing, and I gave him a command to stay and watch my lunch bucket when I went in the forest because I had to do something. And he said, that's what my dog did. He, he, he waited by my lunch bucket. Unfortunately, a fire started in the woods, and the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left by the lunch bucket. But he didn't move. He stayed right where he was, in perfect obedience to his master's word. Rutledge, writing about this experience, says, With tearful eyes, the dog's owner looked up at me and said, Listen, I always had to be careful what I told him to do, because I knew he would do it. That's the last one. So, a few thoughts just to get your juices flowing about the prayer life of Jesus. He starts with the Psalms, he starts with what's given. It's all about receiving, it's regular, it's listening, it's the posture of a student, and it's a posture of obedience. And I think I'm going to stop for now. I, I desperately want to go on and say a little bit more about how you listen, but I. I think I want to stop for tonight because everybody looks worn out and it was a tough drive. Is that all right? Is that good? We're good? All right, so just, but just a glimpse. So I want you to think of Jesus out there. And I just want to encourage you in your own practice of prayer to realize that it's much more about him than about you. And that the most important thing you can learn to do is to learn to listen and to say, Lord, what, what do you have for me today? And you, brothers and sisters, you will be amazed at what the Lord will say to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that it's okay if I end a little bit early? Is that right? Okay. to love and serve the Lord. Right. Well, have a good evening. All right, thank you. Um, before you all take off, uh, just a reminder, your schedule, incidentally, in case you haven't already noticed,